We're continuing on in the Gospel according to John. And this morning we're looking at John chapter 8, verses 48 through 59. And this section comes to a climax with the Jews who previously said they believed in Jesus, uh, attempting actually to assassinate him and put him to death. John 8, beginning at verse 48. Pick up in the middle of the conversation. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and you have seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we thank you for this passage of Scripture. And I pray, even as we prayed and sang earlier, that you would open the eyes of our hearts that we would see the greatness of Jesus Christ. May we see Him in all His glory and splendor. May we tremble before Him. May we bow before His Lordship and majesty and commit ourselves unreservedly to Him, following His commands and living according to His Word. Father, may we do this. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. May be seated. I want to start off by saying this morning that I absolutely love this passage. Uh, I don't think there is a greater statement in all of Scripture made by Jesus concerning His deity than the one made right here. And I don't think there's a statement made by Christ that brings shivers up and down my spine more than this one right here. When Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. That is an awesome statement about his identity. And if we're going to adequately understand it and then fully appreciate it and embrace it, we have to understand what he is saying against the Hebraic background. So if you would, I'd like you to turn to the second book of the Bible, Exodus, and turn to chapter 3. In this passage, we have one of the most important revelations that God has given about Himself. He gives it to Moses at the burning bush. For the first time in redemptive history, God will reveal His personal name to His people. The passage begins, Moses sees a bush, it's on fire, it's not being consumed. He's curious, he he wonders what it's all about and he approaches the bush and the angel of the Lord speaks to him out of the bush. And then in verse 13, Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? One commentator said that in asking for God's name, Moses was asking for God to define himself. But this God will not do because God is beyond definition. 
But I don't think that is right. I don't think Moses is asking for a precise, exhaustive definition of God. This commentator also said, this God refuses to do. You'll notice carefully that God did not refuse Moses' request. Moses asked that he might know the name of God, and God is going to reveal his name to Moses. Now, this is very important because names, while not giving an exhaustive definition, nevertheless do reveal something about a person. And we see this right from the beginning. Adam called his wife's name Eve. Why? Because Eve means life giver, and she was to become the mother of all living. And then a little later, you'll remember that Jesus changed Simon's name to Peter. He said, your name is Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Peter means rock. And he says, from now on, you're going to be called the rock. Because you're going to be one of the foundational pillars of the church. So names are very significant all throughout the Bible. They reveal something about a person, and the same is true of God. And also notice this. Moses is not asking for God's title. He's asking for his name. Names are more personal. Names are more intimate. It might be one thing to say to the president, Mr. President, but it'd be another thing if he said, just call me Barack. That's more personal. That's more intimate. So by God revealing his name, he's saying, I want you to know me at an intimate level. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And then he said, this is my name forever. I am. What does that imply? God is saying, I just am. It implies that God is a self-existent being. One of the greatest mysteries in all reality is that of just sure existence. Last night it was interesting. I was talking to kids into bed and I was getting ready to pray with them. And and Caleb, just out of the blue, we weren't talking about anything. He just said, I just can't understand it. And I I said, well, he said nothing. I said, no, what what can't you understand? He said, I just can't understand how we're going to be with God forever. He said, I just can't imagine that. I said, I know, isn't that mind-boggling? But imagine this. We also are told in Scripture that God has always existed. (laughs) So according to Psalm 90, verse 2, before the mountains were brought forth, or He formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, You are God. That is definitely mind-boggling. God says, I just am. Not I was, not I'm becoming, I just am. So his existence implies that it's a self-existence, an eternal existence. It also implies that he is immutable. There's a big word. Anybody ten or under know what immutable means? Katie? Oh, sorry about that. I didn't mean to embarrass you. Unchanging. God says, I just am. And He just is. He has this existence that is sure being, and it doesn't change. Now, we refer to ourselves as human beings, right? We like to think of ourselves as human beings, I hope. Uh, R.C. Sproul says, we are really not human beings so much as we are human becomings. Because we are in a state of change and flux. Uh, You will not be the same person when you leave this morning as when you came in. You will be a little different. You will know something about God, hopefully, that you didn't know when you came in. You will be challenged a little bit. And if nothing else, you will be a little more than an hour older than when you came in. Some of you might have more gray hair. Some of you might have less hair. Uh, But you will be different, even if you're just a little different. God never changes. He is immutable. Furthermore, I am implies that God is the source of all things. Now, even if you're an ordinary layman, do not be intimidated. 
Okay, college students, do not be intimidated by the intellectual rhetoric of the scientific community. Let me give you kids another big word. Cosmogony. Cosmogony. (laughs) That has to do with the study of the origin of the universe. Where did the universe come from? Well, it comes down to two basic positions. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Or in the beginning, nothing, which then exploded, bringing about everything that exists today. Some refer to that as the Big Bang Theory. Now, have you ever thought about the tremendous explosion that nothing can produce? (laughs) Nothing exploding and then coming into being. Well, you know, that is absolutely nonsense. If there was a time when there was nothing, do you know what we would have today? Nothing. Out of nothing, nothing comes. Which means there had to have been a person or something that has existed from all eternity. And Christians say that it is God who has existed from all eternity. And because He has a being, He brings everything else into existence. And it makes complete logical sense. So if there is something today, like this book, This book right here proves the existence of God because if it exists, this Bible shows that something existed before it. And that something is God. The great I am. Let me write it down for you. Little Hebrew lesson for the day. This is God's name. Okay, whoops. Some of you kids might know I'm writing from uh, right to left instead of left to right. Hebrew works in the opposite direction. Uh, Yahweh or Jehovah. That is God's name. It means I am. Now, let me ask this question. How important is God's name to him? Very important. We could ask it at a human level. Uh, the Nystroms are here, and I had the privilege of doing the service for Nancy And I was mentioning some of the names in the family. And to be honest, I was a little embarrassed because I slaughtered the names. And uh, Brett was correcting me. And usually what I do, and I really take this seriously, usually what I do before a service is I'll say, you know, am I pronouncing this name correctly? But I didn't do that. And Brett corrected me. Um, So I tried to fix the names. I'm not sure I I did any, any better. Um, But that's very important. If if your name has ever been mispronounced, um, you correct people, right? People say, Dwayne, no, it's not Dwayne, it's Wayne. Uh, One time I worked with a guy from West Virginia, and he would say, Wayne. I said, no, no. (laughs) It's only one syllable, Wayne, okay? Uh, But we know to ourselves, our name is important because we're, we're identified with our name. Now, elevate that. Okay, to the divine degree, because we're talking about God's name. God takes his name very seriously as well, because as we said earlier, it reveals who he is. Matter of fact, it's so important that to profane God's name or to take it in vain is called blasphemy. To abuse God's name is so vile that we have a special category to describe it. And God's name is so important. One of the ten big commandments warns us that we should not take the name of the Lord thy God, what? In vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. And when the disciples asked Jesus how to pray, he said, pray this way. Pray, our Father who art in heaven. Number one petition, because it's the most important petition, Hallowed be thy name. Above all things in the universe, God wants His name to be hallowed, to be exalted, to be lifted up, to be honored. Nothing is more important. We read it in the psalm today. Above all things, God has exalted His Word and His holy name. That's how important it is to God. 
Now, I want you to see something. I, I wrote this down intentionally so that you could de- see a distinction. Um, while I'm writing on the board, turn to Isaiah 6. All right, big. Hopefully those in you in the back can see. Turn to Isaiah 6. Many of you have seen this before in case you haven't. Let me point it out. Isaiah chapter 6. And actually we know from the Gospel of John that we'll get to in a little while that what Isaiah sees is Jesus Christ high and lifted up. But that's for another week. Isaiah 6, 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. Notice Lord is spelled capital L, lowercase O-R-D. The Hebrew word is Adonai. Any of you have heard that from the song? Adonai. Look at verse 3. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And notice that it's Lord, capital L, capital O-R-D. Now, what's the difference? This Lord is the Hebrew word Adonai. This Lord is the Hebrew word Yahweh. It's God's personal name. Now, you might be wondering... Well, why don't they write out Adonai or Jehovah? There's different ways of pronouncing it. We don't know exactly. We just have the consonants. But why do they do that? I'll tell you why they do it. They do it because of reverence for God's name. The Hebrews elevated God's name so high that when they came across it in Scripture, they would not say Yahweh. They would say Adonai. And even when I was in Hebrew class in seminary and we would take turns in the class reading the Hebrew text, we were taught when you come across God's name, fill in Adonai. And we're just following what the Jews did out of respect for God's name. They so respected it that they didn't say God's name. It's like meeting someone that you admire. I said the president earlier, if you met the president, I hope out of respect, no one would say, how's it going, Barack? I hope you would address him, Mr. President. That's a sign of respect. And if we do that for earthly rulers and leaders, how much more for God? The Jews didn't feel like they were worthy to address God by his personal name. So they would address him, Lord, Adonai. Now, one other passage to see the importance of God's name. Leviticus. Leviticus 24. This is one example that shows why the Israelites, the Jews, took God's name so seriously. Leviticus 24, beginning at verse 10. Now an Israelite woman's son, whose father was an Egyptian, went out among the people of Israel. And the Israelite's woman's son and a man of Israel fought in the camp. So you can see it. There's... This fight going on, two boys are fighting. Who knows what they're fighting over? If they're like my boys, they just, that's what they do. They fight, they wrestle, but it seems to be a little more intense than just boys having fun wrestling. And the Israelites' woman's son blasphemed the name and cursed. God's holy name is taken in vain. Then they brought him to Moses. And you can just see, they're in the middle of this fight. God's name is blasphemed. They stop everything. Everyone's in shock, in awe. God's name has been taken in vain. They stop everything. They bring him to Moses. His mother's name was Shalemeth, the daughter of Dibra, of the tribe of Dan. And they put him in custody until the will of the Lord should be made clear to them. They arrested him because it was a crime, not just a sin, but a crime to take God's name in vain. They locked him up. They put him in custody 
until they could come before the Lord and say, what should be done for such a heinous thing that has taken place in the camp of your people? And then we read in verse 16, Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him, the sojourner as well as the native. When he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. God exalts his name so high that when those take it in vain, what they deserve is death. The highest penalty given to man because that's how heinous taking God's name is. Now, that is the necessary background that we have to have in the forefront of our minds as we continue through our passage in John 8. As I said earlier, John chapter 8, we're picking up in the middle of a discussion that Jesus is having with the Jews. And keep in mind that this begins by Jesus addressing Jews who claim to have believed in Him. We saw that in verse 30. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him. So the discussion goes all the way back to those who are professing faith in Jesus Christ. And then in verse 48, the Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? A very strong statement. What are they reacting to? Well, the whole conversation, but look at 46. Which one of you convicts me of sin? Now imagine someone saying that. Who convicts me of sin? Jesus is saying, what, what have I ever done wrong? Point it out to me. That's, that's pretty bold. I, I would never say that. You know, if I were to stand up you know, on a Sunday morning, you know, who of you in the congregation, Fox Lake Community Church, you know, convicts me, your pastor, of sin? All kinds of hands would go, would go up. Starting right here with my family. <laughs> that's, that's an incredible thing. And Jesus is pointing out the fact that they have nothing against him. They have no evidence against him. And he goes on and he says, If I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? That's the question. He will answer his own question. 47. Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. That order is very important because we tend to reverse the order. We think people will hear the words of God, understand them, and then become children of God. That's not what John says. John says you first have to be of God, and then if you're of God, you'll understand the Word of God and respond to them. And he says, you don't understand what I'm saying. You don't accept the truth because you're not of God. Earlier he said, you're children of the devil. You cannot understand the truth. Notice the same order in the next chapter, 1026. Jesus says, talking to the Jews again on another occasion, but you do not believe me. Why? Because you are not part of my flock. If you're part of the flock then you'll believe. And again, the order there is very important. Now, Jesus is laying out his, ar- his argument. He's been laying out his logic. And they have absolutely no logical response. They have no evidence against them. So what do you do when you're in an argument with someone? You see this on the, on the news all the time in the political realm. What happens when you have no argument against your opponent? Name-calling. Right? Jesus states what He says, and the Jews say, well, 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 you're a Samaritan. You're demon-possessed. You need to know the Jews despised the Samaritan. They were half-breeds. So they were mocking Him. And then if one mockery is good, let's double it up. You're a demon-possessed Samaritan. That, that's how it works. It works that way in politics, Right? Well, you're a, you're a, and then the name goes out. We don't have to listen to you. You're one of those wackos. Isn't it true? You're a part of the tea party. No? Oh, okay, we don't have to listen to what he has to say. Mockery all the time, and that's what they do here. Mock him, ridicule him. Verse 49, Jesus responds, I do not 
have a demon. Tells them flat out. And then I find this interesting. He offers proof. He says, I do not have a demon. And we could interject and I can prove it to you because I honor my father. Demon possessed people do not honor God. Jesus says, I honor God. And you dishonor me. Jesus is saying, you dishonor a person who's honoring God. What's being implied there? You're the ones that are really possessed. You belong to the devil, which he said earlier. That's why you're dishonoring me, because I honor God. Very interesting. He goes on to say, yet I do not seek my own glory, so they don't misunderstand. Jesus is not a glory hound. He doesn't have to be. There is one who seeks it. God. And He will judge. Jesus doesn't have to seek His own glory because His Father seeks His glory. Think about that for a moment. God the Father is committed to the glory of God the Son. That has implications for us. If God is committed to exalting and glorifying Jesus Christ, we should be committed to bring glory to Jesus Christ in all that we do. And then 51. Truly, truly. And you know that, right? Truly, truly. Pay attention. What I'm about to say is very important. It's going to rock your world. (laughs) Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Imagine Jesus saying he will never see death. And of course, they take him literally and they are outraged. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Which is kind of interesting. That seems to imply that they've suspected it all along. They say, now we know for certain. Now there's no doubt whatsoever. You have a demon. You are possessed. What kind of wacko says that if you obey my teaching, you will never see death? You do not have that kind of power. There's no way you can have that kind of power. And of course, at this point, I think they're taking him very literally. They go on and they say, Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, and I think they put an emphasis on my word. You say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Are you claiming to be greater than Father Abraham? Are you claiming to be greater than all the prophets? Who do you just make yourself out to be? Who do you think you are? He's going to answer them. Drop down to 56. He is greater than their father Abraham. Much greater than they'll ever believe. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. That word rejoice is strong. It can be translated, was overjoyed at the thought of my day. And then he says, he saw it and was glad. Now, how did Abraham, who lived some two millennia before the coming of Jesus Christ, how did Abraham see the day of Jesus Christ so that he could rejoice in his day? The answer is, he saw it by faith. Genesis 22. Many passages, but let me point out just one in Genesis 22. Genesis 22, 15. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and not withheld your son, your only son. When he was asked to offer up Isaac as a sacrifice, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring, singular, shall possess the gates of his enemy, singular. And in your offspring, singular, shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. 
The promise to Abraham is that an offspring was coming from his seed. And that seed singular would bring blessing to all the nations. Not just the Jews, but the Gentiles. All the nations, all the families of the earth would be blessed in the offspring of Abraham, Jesus Christ. And Abraham believed this promise by faith. He was overjoyed by this promise. And with the eyes of faith, he could look down the corridors of time and see a time when his seed would come and would bring this blessing to all the nations. This is the gospel. Turn to Galatians 3, if you will, or just listen to it, if you like. Galatians 3, 7. Now then, that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. If you have faith in the offspring of Abraham, Jesus Christ, you are son of Abraham, heirs of the covenants and the promises made to Abraham. Paul goes on to say, And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, because all the nations would be blessed, not just the nation of Israel, all the nations would be blessed, preached, I love this, Preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham. Abraham heard the gospel of the coming of Jesus Christ. He heard it in advance. He had it preached to him, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. He believed it. He believed in the coming Messiah, put faith in him, saw the day when he come. It brought him tremendous joy and gladness. And Jesus says, if you were children of Abraham, you would be rejoicing in this day. Abraham rejoiced in this day. Once again, they don't understand the spiritual implications because they're on this literal level because they don't have spiritual eyes. Notice their response. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old and you have seen Abraham. What? You're, you're talking nonsense. And then what does Jesus say? Truly, truly, once again, get ready. Something very radical is about to be said. Once again, it's going to knock your socks off. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was some 2,000 years ago, I am. Now, if Jesus just wanted to say that he existed before Abraham, he could have said before Abraham was, I was. I existed long before Abraham, but he didn't say I was. He said, I am. And we've seen this all along in the commentators' debate whether or not he's identifying himself with God. But there's no debate here. This is the best one because it's the clearest one because of the context that is put in. Very clearly, he is not just saying that he existed before Abraham. Very clearly, he is saying, just like God the Father, my existence is a pre-existence. My existence is an eternal existence. And more than that, I am going to take God's name on my lips. I am. I am the great I am. Am. Jesus is saying basically that He is Yahweh. I am. And what is their response? You know what their response is. So they picked up stones to throw at Him. They are angry. They are outraged. They're not just arresting Him. They're not just saying we need to put Him on trial. Weigh all the evidence. They have no time for that. They have no tolerance for that. They pick up stones right there on the spot to stone Him to death for what they think is blasphemy. And when they look up, after picking up the rocks, He's gone. Uh, my version says, Jesus hid Himself and went out of the temple. Literally, it's in the passive. It means, and He was hid. And how he was hid, we don't know. Um, I lean towards the view that it was supernatural. God watched over him. Because in the Gospel of John, John is very clear that they cannot kill him because what hasn't come yet? His hour. They cannot do anything because his hour had not yet come. But notice what Jesus is doing. He is making himself equal with God. Now, there are many passages. Let me just ha have you turn to one other passage in John. John 17. John 17, 
verse 11. This passage is commonly known as Jesus' high priestly prayer. He's praying to the Father. And in 1711, Jesus says, And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name. What is the Father's name? I am. The Father's name is Yahweh. Keep them in your name, Yahweh. And then notice what he says. Which you have given to me. Jesus says, keep them in your name, Yahweh, which you have given to me. The Father has given the Son His name. And I've said this before. I'm Wayne Jr. My Father has given me His name. Jesus has the name of His Father. But don't think of Him as a junior or a lesser deity. He is equal with the Father in every way. And they have the exact same name. And because of that bold statement, very clear in this passage, Jesus is saying, I am. I am Yahweh. His name is my name. They think He's worthy of death. Now, why their anger? I want to try and get at the heart of their anger. And this is what I said last week in the message that you were here. The world will hate Christians. And Jesus said, if the world hates you, know that they hated me first. The world's hatred of Christians is really because of their hatred of Jesus. But now I want to ask this question. Well, where does this hatred of Jesus come from? This hatred of Jesus comes from their hatred of God the Father. And I mean that. I've thought about this. Often what we think is that the Jews have this great love for God, this great reverence for God, and they're mistaken about Jesus. So in their love for God, their zeal for God, defending God, they kill Jesus. They love the Father, but they hate the Son. That does not work. You cannot love the Father and hate the Son. They are one. We cannot compartmentalize our love for God. I love the Father. I hate the Son. I'm indifferent towards the Holy Spirit. They are a package deal. So if they hate the Son, that is prima facie evidence that they actually already Hate the Father. Now, this is what you need to note very carefully. And I believe there's a very strong lesson here, a very sobering lesson here. I want to diagram this so you can see this. Who is Jesus talking to? Sam Harris? Is he talking to the prominent atheist of his day? Let's, let's draw a circle like this, concentric circles. And let's just say, these, this, this is the purest church. Wayne Grudem in his book on theology talks about more pure and less pure churches. I, I think there's something to that. On the outside, let's just say you have, you have atheists. Okay, Let's put the atheists here. Okay, they're, they're outside the faith. They don't, they don't claim to be a part of the faith. They don't claim to have any love for God. That's not who Jesus is addressing. Jesus is addressing those who are claiming to be religious. Now, it's interesting. This last week I was talking with someone and they said they've been witnessing to a friend. doesn't claim to have any faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, this person has been witnessing to a friend and their friend finally has joined a church. The Unitarian Universalist Church. Now, wh- why is that? And this person said, and I, I don't know all the details, but this person said, I just can't stomach the thought of God sending people to hell. And this person said, you're going to like the Unitarian Universalist Church. And they will. You know why? Because it suits them. 
Timothy says people will gather around them, teachers, to say what their itching ears want to hear. This is the truth. People pick churches to suit themselves. They do. People pick a church that says, that fits me. That's my kind of church. People go to the Unitarian Universalist Church because they, they know there's some kind of God. They know that. They can't deny that. It's pretty clear from the existence of creation. But they can't stomach the Trinity, the deity of Christ, His atoning for our sin, people going to hell. So, they're, they're right here. They're just what we would call the fringes of, of religion, the Christian religion. But we could, we could move in. And I, I'm not going to name the churches because that'll be too distracting. But, <laughs> but whatever you think is the purest church and then less pure, Less pure than that, less pure. Out here, we could, we could say liberal. I think I can at least say that. And this, liberal churches deny the inspiration and authority of Scripture. Maybe deny the Trinity. Uh, liberal churches. Now, this is what I want you to notice. Who is Jesus addressing? This, this is what is frightening about this passage. Jesus is addressing these people. The conservatives of the day, the most orthodox religious people of the day. These are conservative, highly religious God-haters. That's sobering. That tells us that you can go to church every Sunday. You can give to the church. You can serve in the church. You can say amen to the message and still be outside the faith. Is that not frightening? Now notice what Jesus said in, in verse 51. 851. He said, Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. True disciples of Jesus Christ. And he's trying to help these people to see you're not really a disciple. You say you believe in me, but you don't. And here's the evidence. If you're really a disciple, you keep my word. John Calvin commented on this passage. He said, therefore, in this passage, Christ promises eternal life to his disciples, but demands disciples who not merely nod their assent like donkeys or profess with the tongue that they approve his teaching, but who will keep it as a precious treasure. See, they keep it. They obey it. They follow it. That's the true disciple. And you can be religious and not be a disciple. And here's the question we have to ask ourselves. Am I really a completely submitted, a completely surrendered disciple of Jesus Christ? And here's what's so scary. Many people are in conservative churches because they love conservative values. They're conservative politically. They're conservative religiously. And you know some political commentators. You, you know they're in this category. They talk about the existence of God. God created the world. They'll say, my talents, my abilities are from God. They'll say, the Bible is God's Word. But they do not have saving faith in Jesus Christ. And many people can go to church and they can believe all these religious things. But they draw a line. And here's what happens often. You don't see that line until a certain message comes up and they hear the message and they shrink back and they say, that's going too far. I I can accept all this, but I cannot accept that. And all of a sudden you see they're not really completely surrendered. They'll agree with everything because it's conservative, but all of a sudden, I'm sorry, I can't yield to that teaching. God is going too far there. God is asking too much there. And it may really indicate that they haven't put their faith in Christ. And here's what we all have to ask ourselves. Are we completely surrendered? Could it be that we've come all this way, yet there's still an area in our life where we're stiff-arming God and we're saying, thanks, but no thanks. You're asking a little too much there. I can't yield to that. I can buy everything else, but that's, that's too much. It is possible to do that. And to deceive ourselves. And we have to make sure we're not holding anything back. Forget about our neighbor. We have to look at ourselves. Am I holding anything back? Let me give you just one other application that I thought of as well. And what we 
tend to do in this church, and, and it's interesting, is we, we go through the Bible, we lay out God's Word, which exalts God and shows how, how great He is. And you might be thinking, well, at our church, we're, we're a little lacking on application. I admit we are, okay? <laughs> I, I admit that. But some, something hit me. I was looking at a conference, and this was a Piper conference, and they had just listened to a pastor. And they all said it was really good, lots of application. And, and Piper said, people would probably look at me and say, Piper, you need more application. And I'd say, they probably say to me, you know, Christensen, you need more application in the, in the message. But Piper said something, and I wish he would have expounded on it a little more, and actually he has in other places, but he said there's different ways of bringing about change. And you, you can tell people what they need to do in the Christian life, and I think there's a place for that. But I would prefer to be heavy on telling you how great God is and then saying, now this is what he calls you to do, and just simply say, go do it. Maybe if you want to... A diagram. Maybe I'll diagram just for fun since I have a board and a marker. Might as well use it, right? Here's, I guess, your visual. Maybe this helps. Okay, over here we have, uh, whoops, 90%, 10%. Okay, 90%, I'm just going to write it this way, 90% God's greatness. 10% application. Okay? So if you want, if you want to know what, what I'm trying to do every Sunday, let me just tell you. It's no secret. Let me tell you what I'm trying to do. This is what I'm trying to do every Sunday. 90%. I'm trying to say week after week, God is great. God is glorious. God is mighty. He's holy. He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He is awesome. He is great. Open the eyes of our heart, Lord. Please, may we see you in all your glory and splendor. May it be as though we could actually see the train, the flowing train filling the sanctuary this morning. Would it be like we actually could feel the heaviness of the Spirit of God in the midst of our gathering together. Father, help us to see your glory. May we stand in awe of you. May we bow just because you're a great God. And then I conclude by saying, now here's the application. Go have family devotions this morning. Read a passage of Scripture. Pray together. Okay, let's close in prayer. And I really believe in that because what we need to see is God's great. And when we see that, the application is easy. But I could harangue you all day long. You've got to do this. You've got to do that. And so, because God is worthy. First, I have to say, God is worthy. Let me show you in a hundred thousand different ways why He is worthy. And when you see that, then the obedience will naturally follow. And let me just close with one example from Hebrews. And this is from Bob Began. He sent this to the elders. He's an elder in training, I guess we could call him. So please be praying for Bob. He's joining us for our elders' meetings and and he said, I came across this passage in my devotions and I, and I never saw it before. And I said, I, I love that passage. It's a passage about tithing. And it comes from Abraham. By the way, notice this has nothing to do with the law. The law won't come until 400 years later. This is Abraham, the father of promise, tithing, paying tithes to Melchizedek. Some people think Melchizedek is a pre-incarnate uh, vision of Christ, or manifestation, I, I should say, of Christ. Others think he was a man. Either way, we know at the very least he's a type of Jesus Christ. So this is Abraham paying tithes to Jesus Christ. And notice what verse 4 says. See how great this man was? See how great this man was? To whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. And I said to the elders, I say this on Sundays all the time when I'm praying for the offering, Lord, we are ascribing greatness to You by what we're giving. Abraham was ascribing greatness to Melchizedek by giving a tenth of the spoils. And every single Sunday when the offering comes by, we're saying with our check, with our money, God, You're this great in my eyes. 
And this is what I know. If you're to be tithers, I don't need to just lay out the biblical case. There's a place for that. But what I need to do is help you see Jesus is worthy. His kingdom is worthy. We want the gospel to go to the nations. We want the Muslims to bow before Jesus Christ and to confess that He is Lord. We want to send out missionaries that's going to take money. Who's willing to give? And when you see the greatness of God and the greatness of the kingdom and the mission, when that gets a hold, you'll give. It's like that with any organization. If you really believe in a certain political campaign, you will give. If you believe in a certain cause, Red Cross or whatever, if you believe in the cause, you will give. It's the same when it comes to the kingdom of God. If you see the greatness of God, you will live. So my message week in and week out is God is great. That's it. I just come at it from different angles every single week. Different passage, different text, same goal. God is great. I want you to leave here skipping, singing, praising God, ready to lay down your life for Him. I want my children to do that. I think of the children too. I want them week in and week out. See, God is great. And I I want their understanding of God to grow. I want them to say, wow, I understand this of God. But now two years later, I understand this of God. And by the time they're 18, I want their understanding of God to be so big that they say, Dad, I want to serve Jesus Christ with my whole life. I wonder what He wants me to do. I don't care. Whatever He wants me to do, I'm willing to do it. Because He's so great. He's so worthy. And then they will serve. Then I will serve. Then you will serve. Jesus Christ is the great I am. Lord, help us to see. Let's pray. Father, please open our eyes fully, not just a little bit. Father, may we not be like the blind man who had his eyes open and then he saw people and they were like trees. Father, may we not have vague visions of Your glory and the greatness of Jesus Christ. Father, open our eyes fully so that we can see the full manifestation of Your perfections and the glory of Christ. Father, may our children growing up seeing that we have a great God and a great Savior who is worthy of their very life. May our children see that if God called them as missionaries to Muslims in the Middle East, they should go, even if it would cost them their lives. Because God is worthy. Father, may Your worthiness not be something we sing with our lips, but don't mean with our hearts. May it be something that we sing and mean with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Because You have been gracious to us and You have given us eyes to see. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.